Hello and welcome to this episode of The Broadcast with me, David Brooks, Head of Policy at Broadstone, and my colleague Simon Q, Head of Market Engagement. How are you doing, Simon? Jolly good, thank you, Dave. It's nice to be back. Excellent. This week, we are joined by a special guest, Carolyn Saunders, who's partner at uh, Denton's in the pensions team. How are you, Carolyn? I'm good, thank you. Very good for a Monday morning. Ah, <laughs> oh, the people, the listeners don't need to know what time of day it is. It could be any time, it could be anywhere. We don't even know where they are. We do get listeners all over the world. So we get the little little um, stats and the, there's people all over the world that listen to the broadcast. So wherever you are, morning, noon or night, welcome. So this is our first record of 2024. So this time we're going to go through all the things that have been hitting trustees' agendas um, this last few months. And there's been a lot. And Carolyn, how are your clients and how are your team coping with all this? Gosh, uh, yeah, I think slightly reeling under the onslaught of things that have come already and the things that are to come. It was, uh, I think, probably the first week of the new year was nice and quiet. Uh, and then suddenly it all started happening. So obviously we've got the general code, we've got the funding regulations, and we know there's more to come on funding. We had um, various announcements in the autumn statement, so we know we're expecting consultations on various things coming up. Um, yeah, so lots going on. And meanwhile, there's just a kind of day job to do. There's all the all the work to do, which tends to be a lot of buy-in and buy-out work at the moment. Yeah, the resourcing issues must be, I mean, we're struggling. I mean, struggling is a strong word, but, you know, the resourcing is, is, you know, is, is difficult because, yeah, you're, you're dealing with trying to future-proof your schemes and try to look ahead to the future. But then there's the here and now just you know business as usual as well as dealing with the big the big projects that the buy-in let's start with general code though let's just start start with that one we've got let's say we've got a shopping list to go through so let's go through it one at a time so the general code which is long awaited you know we had the draft in 2021 and then we finally had the final version very early this this year um not a great deal changed but i don't know what what your key takeaways of the general code and how it changed perhaps and and what should be on the trustees agenda yeah, no, I agree. No significant changes there. Um, I think the main issue, I suppose, for trustees is the additional compliance burden, really, of, of thinking now how they how they deal with this and how they roll it out, particularly those schemes, the 100 plus member schemes that mm. need to do an own risk assessment, because obviously that needs to be documented and effectively it's an ongoing process. But the time limits for implementing this are quite generous. And, and also, I I think trustees, and maybe this is an odd thing to say, but actually they should be welcoming this because well-run schemes don't really have anything to fear. And actually, schemes need to have proper governance. And it's their way of, A, making sure that they're complying with their fiduciary duties, but also evidencing that. So actually, I think rather than being fearful of this additional compliance, schemes should actually be embracing this. Uh, that may be a bit of a hard message at a time when there are so many other things on, on desks. But actually, I think it's it's pretty positive, really, for schemes. And as I say, well-run schemes should should be welcoming this. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. You know, it's it's a bit of a reset because there's so many these codes of practice that they've updated have been very old and and the module system has been around with us for a few years sitting on the statute waiting to be enacted a lot of it is law that's already law you know there's not much new in it other than like you said the aura the remuneration policy the cyber risk policy and the climate change policy that's they're the new bits like you say if you've already got the lot of the other stuff then you can okay review next time you come to review look at that module and see where the regulators moves their messaging on a bit and updated their thinking and make sure you're still in line with that but but it isn't doesn't it doesn't mean root and branch throw everything out that you've been doing for the last lord knows how many years 20 30 years it's 
okay let's refine let's up let's put the new stuff in and let's let's go forward yeah i agree and and even the you know the new things that you mentioned there again i would say that actually in the context of what trustees should be doing. They're not really new, um, but it's good to have have them laid out there and have trustees reminded of them uh, and, you know, have the need to think about them. Mm. Yeah. Simon, what's your take on the general code sense from perhaps a, a slightly more on the outside of actually doing it? But you know what I yeah, mean? <laughs> we, we've said before, it's an awful lot of common sense that's been brought into one mm. place. And as Carolyn rightly says, it's things that really should be be done anyway. Mm. Um, I mean, going back to my days of coaching, you, you have to give people the rules, the tools and the basic training, and this is effectively giving them the rules. So we need to know the boundaries within which we need to operate. Um, that's no different for us, for trustees, uh, for any advisors really to the scheme. So I, I yeah, uh, I think mm. it is very much to be welcomed. I, I think personally, I would like to have a little bit more in there about the proportionality angles you know if your scheme you know it's a bit, a bit more of the i think they've said this afterwards but a bit more of the if it's not broke don't fix it type things you don't don't have don't feel like you have to do lots and lots and lots of things and I, and, and again carolyn as you mentioned that we've got this long timetable at least a couple of years for the first aura so use that time you know maybe use the first scheme year you've got or the remainder of the scheme year you're in to just review the policies get some policies you know get the new policies in place make sure you've got the existing policies that at least do the, do the minimum and then have a full scheme year to, to review your aura and how well your policies are working you know did you make a decision that was um, challenged because of a conflict of interest were, were there some processes that fell down and then you can use your next aura to kick on for the next three years and these this could in a way be a way of just just driving what's on the agenda and driving what's most important for the scheme at the moment depending on strategy and time horizon yeah, I, I agree. I think that's really sensible. It's about sort of taking your time, recognising that this is an organic process, that most schemes will have a lot of the building blocks there already and kind of not to panic, really. Mm. Yeah, that's not, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but this is being recorded, but it is meant to, I mean, this is meant to be kind of just meat and drink. This is meant, not meant to be that exciting. I think some people have got very excited about the general code. And that's great. Love a bit of excitement on pensions. But this is this is just stuff. You know, this is risk management. You know, it's very core. Cool. I mean, we're old enough to remember 21st Century Trustee, which was an initiative the regulator did maybe 10 years ago. Now, maybe maybe more. You know, it was well into the 21st century. But anyway, you know, 21st Century Trustee. This was, you know, making trustees understand you are running a lot of money and a big responsibility. You know, run yourselves like a business. And I think the schemes that, that took listen to that will be the ones that are in the good position. Will be thinking, well, we did this 10 years ago when we had a bit of a, you know, act more like a business than a sort of a cottage industry like a bit of a sideline thing you know take your take your role seriously and you'll be fine you know, i think i think we might have done general code enough there <laughs> but that's good okay funding regs so we, the long-awaited funding regs oh, i mean how many full starts have we had on these but finally had some regs which will set some of the framework for how schemes will approach their valuations from October this year onwards, I think we're expecting it to enforce from April, but evaluate no, September, isn't it? September onwards, those valuations. Um, long awaited, were you relieved, excited? How excited were you, Caroline, when this arrives? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure I was that excited, but oh, um, <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't admit that. But um, it, it's good to see that it is finally here. As you say, there have been many false starts, there have been many 
calls, I suppose, along the way for it to be abandoned because so much has happened since it was originally conceived. You've had COVID, you've had Brexit, you've had LDI, you've had just general economic pressures. Um, but now we have it. We still don't have everything because we still don't have TPR's final code. And I think we're awaiting covenant guidance and we're also awaiting um, fast track valuation parameters. Um, but it seems from what we know that um, government DWP have listened to some of the concerns that were raised during consultation and you can see some of the stuff that has come into the funding regs. So yeah, I think it's I think it's good um, to finally have the certainty or relative certainty of, of having this. Um, I, I think it's interesting though that the government has very firmly tying this, I think, to the productive finance agenda as well saying that, well, if we have this stability around funding, then that will enable schemes to be bolder. So maybe that's the reason why, against all the resistance, it, this has been pushed through. Yeah, that's right, Carolyn. We've also um, had uh, Nausicaa Delfas, the CEO of the pensions regulator, talking recently about M&A, uh, mergers and acquisitions, and how employers should be getting trustees around the table. And I wonder if that's because the notifiable events regime or the new notifiable events that we've been been told about um, either aren't coming in at all. So they're trying to do do exactly the same thing by stealth or whether there's another delay on them uh, because they still don't seem to be uh, approaching the horizon anytime soon. Um, I don't know what you, you think about that. Uh, no, I agree. I mean, yeah, that's an example of something else that has been long awaited, um, but seems to be even less likely to happen, I think. Um, yeah, that was very interesting talk, I think, by Nausicaa around the need to get trustees involved at an earlier stage uh, in M&A activity. And I think also uh, it's obviously against a background of schemes being better funded than they were. So pensions perhaps being less of an issue uh, on, on transactions and perhaps you know, perversely, businesses being that were less attractive because of their pension schemes now, now not having those same issues. Uh, and I, you know, I think that was the background really in terms of potentially there being more M&A activity where pension schemes are involved. I think so. And we've also got a couple of issues there around surpluses, potentially trapped surpluses, which it's been some years since we've really had those conversations. And then the, I mean, you touched on uh, productive finance, the the move to get schemes or employers to run the schemes on, um, well, they're going to be sort of less inclined to do that if there isn't legislation to help them get the surplus out as and when they need it. So I think there's there's definitely more discussion around that uh, that that will be coming. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I think the notifiable events it was uh, a great fanfare uh, when the new ones were introduced. But it's it's been some years now, and we're still nowhere closer to getting them in. It does feel like it was a battle fought and no longer fought. I don't know who won, but you know what I mean. It's a battle that sort of fizzled out. You know, as Carolyn said, you know, the funding has improved so much. You know, what are we? What are we fighting for? What what problem are they trying to fix? It's been the it's been the the mess. It's been the journey of these funding regs has been you know, you know deal with issues around you know BHS and Carillion and things like this. You know let's and then there's the anti embarrassment. Let's not have the, the regulator in front of select committees being told they didn't use their powers properly. But you know I mean that was nearly ten years ago. Some of that stuff. You know the world has continued to turn while the regs have slowly made their way through. So it feels like these regs actually reflect the world we're in. Now, so this is our opportunity to get the, get it done before something else 
happens you know to to the industry <laughs> the industry or to the economy or something or whatever so yeah perhaps that's that's a good thing hopefully yes, yeah I'd yeah absolutely um i mean just to pick up on the point that simon made about uh, db funding yeah. and that's sorry db surplus really and access to db surplus um that's that's kind of really interesting obviously we've got the reduction in the tax on surplus i think coming in in april um, and then the promise um, of a consultation this winter. Um, I don't know, maybe I think with climate change, we're probably no longer in winter. So <laughs> probably probably missed that opportunity. Um, but we are expecting a consultation around that. And I think that's kind of tricky. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see that consultation and particularly interesting to see how proposals interact with scheme rules, what the thinking is going to be around that. For example, if you have a scheme where actually the rules do not allow you to return surplus to the employer. Um, then, and, and I know the legislation makes it tricky anyway, but you know, if the scheme rules don't even allow it in the first place, then how is the government proposing um, that whatever new legislation it brings in will, will interact with that? I think that's quite interesting. So, so just to be clear, we're talking about when schemes are continuing so that they so rather than on wind up it's 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 more maybe not straightforward but at least it's 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 clearer that you know when you're winding up a trust if there's an excess and that then the beneficiary they can be one of the, the sponsor of that trust but we're talking about schemes continuing on to pay benefits and not probably not accrue benefits probably but maybe i don't know and then the employer taking a share of some upside in while while continuing and so that is the problem, isn't it? It's allowing that. I just want to make sure it's clear for, for the listener. We're talking about that scenario. And you see, as you say, scheme rules probably don't allow that without triggering a wind up. Is that usually the, the downside if you start trying to take money out or? Well, generally, um, a lot of scheme rules do not these days allow surplus to be returned while the scheme is ongoing in any event. Um, and the legislation also makes that difficult, even where the scheme rules do allow it. And even on a, a wind up where the scheme rules do allow the return of surplus, as we know, the legislation is very restrictive and there are certain hoops that the scheme has to jump through, which include, for example, consulting with members, effectively consulting with members or notifying members uh, before you even return the surplus to the employer. So I assume that the thinking is around changing uh, all of that legislation that at the moment constrains what schemes can do. But as I say, if the basic uh, mechanism isn't there in any event in the scheme rules, irrespective of what the legislation does, then um, I'm, I'll be interested to see what the proposals mm. are around that. So you need some kind of statutory override to effectively mm. put that in. And that would... I'm not. I'm, I'm no expert in trust law, which is good job you're here. But that would that would that would seem that would seem very difficult. I mean, we have overrides in the past on there's usually benefit payments to members mm. and things like that. You might have an override to allow certain things, but a statutory override to a surplus payment. Yeah. Might be a very courageous yeah. minister, maybe impossible minister. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think that's very difficult. So, um, yeah, awaiting that consultation with interest. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yes. I, yeah, I just think it's uh, so interesting that you know, the minister says lots of things or things are, are said with the, with the positive tilt to it, but it just might end up being the too difficult box when mm -hmm. it finally comes through. Because member protections and all these sorts, you know, you want to make sure that it's there to pay the benefits for the members, not necessarily to um, to pay the sponsor. OK, we did touch on productive finance, so it might be worth just continuing on on that one and 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 how the government are going to make their productive finance 
square peg get into the pensions round hole, I suppose, because I I, I get more and more frustrated with the productive finance. Um, are you frustrated with productive finance? This is probably like a self-help thing now, but I'm I'm frustrated <laughs> with the productive finance sort of mantra. And then even the Labour Party are talking about productive assets yeah. now. They try to rebrand it something else. So it's something ill-defined. They try to define something else. I don't know. I don't quite understand. But I'm getting very frustrated with the whole thing. Are, are you with me? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And I think probably a lot of trustees are with you too. Um, I mean, it kind of feels that all of the policy at the moment is kind of heading towards facilitating investment in productive finance. Um, so, you know, the drive to consolidation, the stuff that we had around trustee capability, which in particular was looking at their investment skills, um, sort of making it easier to invest in productive finance. So you've got the British Venture Capital Association compact um, and then obviously you have the, the Mansion House Compact with the kind of nine large DC funds kind of leading the way. Uh, and then the surplus stuff that we've been talking about, I think, again, that's all part of it because employee, employers and schemes will then be emboldened uh, to, to invest that way. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, as I said earlier, the fact that we now have more certainty around the funding regime, I think the government also sees that as a way of encouraging bolder investment uh, mm. so it seems to be a bit of a, a sort of you know single single thought process at the moment going on it does um but the the question i mean we're talking about member protections is if it goes wrong who's on the hook because it doesn't seem right that the ppf's on the hook for it mm. um but so is there going to be a, a an underwritten thing from the government or how, how i just don't get how it's going well of course i mean dave's shaking his head there for <laughs> for the listener um but of course there isn't um i, I doubt very much there would be so uh, yeah i mean trustees are going to have to get very comfortable with something they're probably going to be very uncomfortable with yeah and i, I suspect they don't really understand well i mean that's the thing we don't really understand it you know the trustees have been on this journey for the last 10 years or more of you know if you don't understand it, don't invest in it, you know, or, mm. and, or if you don't, don't appreciate the risk, you know, reward um, ratio and the drive to reduce risk generally, you know, we don't like equities because we don't like the, the rocky ride and the one, one, one valuation, you could be in surplus or whatever. And the next valuation you're in deficit and you haven't, can your employer deal with all that, all that rocky road? So let's just lock down the risk. Let's clear a, clear a path. This just for DB anyway. I, I think for defined benefit, this feels just the wrong idea at the wrong time, or maybe the right idea at the wrong time, but definitely not now, because schemes are just the majority of our clients are just looking at this, thinking, why, why would I want to add more risk? I've got so close to the end, hmm. I'm nearly there, and then why suddenly roll the dice again on this? It just seems crazy. Yeah, no, I I agree with that, and um, and I guess. The government is also seeing possibly the DC schemes and particularly the big master trusts as the ones who will blaze the trail here, aren't they? And uh, I suppose that also leads on to the, the the thinking and the report and the review they did around master trusts and the anticipating greater consolidation in that market as well, which obviously also they think will assist the productive finance agenda. Yeah, so it all seems to be pointing in one direction. No, absolutely, and I think that's I think they are gradually hearing the industry say okay db has a lot of money in it but it's 
it's ring fenced it's it's tied up yes you're going to have some big schemes that are going to run on and have a you know with with a really strong employer great let them go for it you might get a few billion out of db world but dc where all the money is going now if you can push this agenda to to have fewer master trusts or fewer trust-based dc schemes in general which they're on this journey to do that's where their focus should be and great yeah maybe it will give some you know for younger savers if you're in your 30s and you can tie your money up you don't need the money for 30 40 years then great let's let's you know let's use productive finance to give you some fantastic returns and green tech startups or whatever these things are yeah i think that's where the focus should be and rather than an immediate you know the the, the government's advisors going look we've got a couple of trillion pounds here we can just get some of that it's like okay we'll just manage your expectations a bit more and go okay within a couple of years or maybe 10 years we'll have a few hundred billion pounds in this stuff that we can be using but it's this it's, it's this necessity to grab this money now and force this through now which i think is where the, the government have gone slightly wrong i don't know why government if they're in, intent on doing this they have nest they've funded that to is it something like a billion they've they've put into that uh mm. so far it's kind of pseudo government backed so if they, if they want to prove that it works when they actually work out what productive finance is or productive assets try it on on nest and underwrite that and then they can go to industry and say look we've tried this it works brilliantly well and then everyone will get comfortable with it but until such time i mean no one wants to be the first to do it I and mean, we saw how long it took for clara to sign their their first um and i get there are regulatory issues around that as well but it's, it's very difficult to get a, a, a trustee a, a scheme to be the first to try something Yes, I agree. I think trustees are very wary of being the first because there's a great comfort in running with the herd. And 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 why should they when if they feel that the investment returns are unproven or they can get investment returns that are as are at least as good elsewhere, something that they're familiar with? Mm. It's that time horizon thing again, isn't it, as well? If they can if they're thinking, well, we're a hop and a skip away, we might be two valuations away from being in a position to buy out, you know, we're using this time to get our data in order. I haven't got the time for mm. you, productive finance. You're mm -hmm. just not on my on my radar. And we have touched on a little bit on consolidation um, here and there in this, and that that being effectively the goal of of government. Um, I just, you know, the thoughts of both of you, really. I suppose. Um, do you, you know, what sort of time scale are we looking at? Because you know, we're having the buyout market for DB is speeding up but it's not a breakneck speed you know the you know still got 5000 on db schemes and the dc space it feels like it's not going fast enough for the government's liking and i don't know what you think carolyn i come to you first but you know what what you think maybe we need to do to speed it up or whether it's going or we shouldn't worry you know nature let nature take its course yeah well i, I suppose it depends on what we want to achieve and obviously the government as we've discussed um is seeing this as a way of enabling um, different types of investment. Uh, and I think the Labour Party actually has said, I'm sure Rachel Reeves has said that they would give TPR powers to enforce consolidation, um, which feels like the, the wrong approach to me. I mean, just thinking of clients that we have, we certainly have employers who have own DC schemes that actually have cultural reasons uh, for wanting to retain those rather than consolidate into master trust, for example. Um, and you mustn't lose sight of the fact that um, ultimately this is an employer provided benefit. 
um, albeit with requirements around it, for example, in relation to auto enrolment. But that is quite important, I think. Um, and it's very important for some employers still to feel that they have that control and that connection. And I'm not saying that they don't have that in a master trust, but for some that that's a different concept and they feel differently about it. Um, so, yeah, so I think there are reasons why it's going perhaps more slowly than mm. the regulator might like. I think the problem is, is that top-down view that all small schemes or small trust-based schemes are bad and we don't like you just feels too simplistic. And again, that we're talking about, well, I was talking about management expectation about what all that money is going to go, but the management expectation of the speed of these DC schemes deciding unilaterally, yes, we've had enough and we're going to transfer to a master trust. Well, that's not, it's just not going to happen very fast for the reasons you say and other technical reasons as well, benefit, good, good reasons, you know, why you want to stay outside of that, that environment. But the regulators focused on risk, of course, and, and risk to itself. I and mean, we've said before um, about being called in front of the Work and Pension Select Committee or various different committees. They don't want that. So the more I mean, we saw with with master trusts, there were oh, 80 something, I think. And, and um, at one point they said they wanted nine master trusts. Mm. Why? Because they're easier to regulate. Mm. Why do they want the smaller schemes consolidated? Because it be become easier to regulate. That's that's what's driving that. It's not necessarily the best outcome. As, as you've rightly said, um, you, you have well-run small schemes and well-run large schemes and vice versa. You can have dreadfully run large schemes that we've, we've seen in the past. So, it, it, okay, yes, you're likely to have your governance ducks in a row. The larger the scheme and the more resource you have, but it doesn't mean that small schemes are bad. And I, I just really don't like that approach where it's if you're small, uh, you're a small scheme, you must be badly run. Now, I think uh, touching on Carolyn's point about uh, Rachel Reeves, and you're absolutely right. She did say that she was uh, going to give uh, the regulator or certainly consider giving the, the regulator powers to force consolidation. If there's a very clear governance gap and it is a very poorly run scheme, regardless of size, then I think the regulator should, with the relevant checks and balances, be able to say, actually, you've got a period of time to shape up. And if you don't shape up, actually, we're going to force you to, to consolidate. I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, I think the regulator needs that tool. Um, but as I say, they need to be the checks and balances in place. So the regulator doesn't just make their life an awful lot easier with a, the swipe of a pen. OK, Carolyn, moving on. It's a question that's on Simon and I's mind a lot at the moment is pension commission. Yes or no. What do you think? Oh, um, sort of mixed feelings, really. Um, so in one sense, you could say, oh, it feels a bit of a no brainer because pension provision is is too important for it to be left to the vagaries of party politics, which I, which I would agree with. Uh, and obviously, auto-enrolment was a product of a pensions commission. So we have a bit of a blueprint there, albeit that it took a very long time to come through. Um, I think, I suppose my, my issue with it is that there's already a lot of really good thinking that's going on around the industry in terms of policy. And you have organizations like the PPI who do their brilliant independent research. You have PLSA with their retirement living standards. And you've also got the um, pensions review being conducted by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, um, I think with Aberdeen. So it kind of feels, whilst there is a need, I think, for an independent voice, I think if you now set up a pensions commission without regard to all the brilliant stuff that is already out there in the industry, it just feels like almost like another backwards step. Um, so yeah, so so kind of mixed views. I wouldn't want it to be just another 
big commission that takes years to report and actually doesn't progress anything. And I think if we were going to go down that route, you would want to make use of the organisations that are already doing good work and the good thinking that is already out there rather than creating something completely new. I would agree. I mean, if there's a pensions commission that is truly independent and it doesn't have influence from people with vested interests and it looks at the industry as a whole and what we're trying to deliver for, for members, for um, people at retirement, uh, then that would be a good thing. But I don't think we're ever going to get there. I think it would be, you know, a camel is a, a horse designed by a committee. Um, I, th I think it would just be this mishmash. Um, people with vested interests would um, be sort of chipping away saying, well, we need to do this and we need to make sure it does this. And in the end, it won't actually do what it's there to do. And I think your your point about it, it would deflect from all of the good things that are happening currently in the industry is, is absolutely valid. So, I mean, I'm, I'm against it because I can foresee that it would just be an absolute mess. Um, and your, your point on auto-enrolment, great that we have auto-enrolment and uh, more people are saving for a pension. I think we are yet to see the real problem that I see with auto-enrolment. And of course, we know that contributions aren't enough uh, as, they, as they currently are. But people that believe they're going to be getting a pension and they equate, I mean, people older than me even, uh, which is possible, uh, but people that think they're going to get a pension and equate it to a DB pension and then they retire and it's not a lot um they will then start spreading the word and saying well um you must opt out of this as soon as you possibly can because you're going to retire and you're going to get nothing and i think that's the problem with auto enrollment and unless we start to address that now and sorry i've gone off on a massive tangent but unless we start to address that now it's going to hit very hard and very quickly at some point and i think we'll have real issues around auto enrollment so um would a commission help with that no i don't think it would Oh, so much to go out there, Simon. <laughs> the, the, you know, the point that made me scribble something down on my pad was when you said somebody who's who's on, you know, who's on on the water on minimum, let's say, and they get to retirement and they look at their their statement, and they're like, well, that's not enough. That's not enough for me to retire. And the problem, that's my key problem with water enrollment is that maybe that person shouldn't have been in the pension in the first place. Maybe they should have had had their contributions to themselves to save in an ISA, and the employer should have paid them a little bit more. You know, why give people, why make, why force people to save, force in inverted commas, because, you know, it's, you can opt out, but effectively force people to save for something that is not giving them any value for their later life. I, that's the, that's my key problem with auto enrollment is we are, we're such pension enthusiasts that it's almost sacrilege to think, actually, maybe a pension isn't right for everybody. Maybe there's other ways of saving and we should make it easier for people to save in other ways rather than pension, pension, pension. Oh, that was my point, Dave, on, on the commission, and, and mm. we should look holistically and and understand what is right for people. And the people with vested interest, because they want to continue the pensions industry because they're doing very well out of it, say, oh, it must be a pension, it must be a pension. And your point there is absolutely right. It might not be the right thing to do. Mm. There, there might be a route via ISA. It might be another savings product with tax breaks that the employer can contribute to that puts them in a better position. Um, I, there just needs to be more thought around this rather than just going pensions are great because of the tax breaks and they are, but they're not necessarily right for all people at all stages of their lives. I agree with all the points made about auto enrolment and about how we need to look at this much more holistically um, and think about generally about um, 
people's living standards in later life. That's ultimately what it's about. And it's how you achieve that. And there are all sorts of different ways of achieving that, mm. uh, including um, really interesting research recently from the PPI, just looking at the impact of um, property and younger people coming through who won't own property uh, and how that is going to affect their quality of life in later years uh, if people are, are paying rent for example, at that stage and, and not being free of that obligation. So it's a much bigger topic, as you say, Simon, than than just looking at pensions. And then, go on, Tom. Oh, thanks, Dave. I, I was going to say we, long-term care, there's no, we're not going down that route now because we haven't got time, but that is another issue that needs to be factored in uh, and currently isn't. It's a separate discussion when it needs to be part of that discussion. Mm. I just, Carolyn, you got me thinking when you're talking about people perhaps in the future retiring with with um, you know mortgage or rent rent issues, and we have the the retirement living standards from PLSA, which are fantastic, you know. But all that expenditure, not income, because it's expenditure numbers that you need to maintain a certain lifestyle, are all exclusive of of um, housing costs, effectively. So it's you know the amount of money they're suggesting people need for a you know for a moderate um, income is is a large number these days. It's almost you know it's up there with median earnings so it's so it's quite astonishing how much money people are going to have to save to maintain that that quality of life when you add state pension in as well to to the private to the private savings time is our enemy so we have a lawyer so i'm going to ask you about section 37 carolyn because it's something that people do keep mentioning to me that um this this issue that we're all sort of hanging over us so we're all kind of aware of it and unless you need to deal with it I might so I'll just quickly summarize it for everybody so it's this 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 um, uh, Virgin Media against NTL judgment that said that if you hadn't provided a certificate from the actuary the a section 37 certificate from the actuary that the deed you're changing doesn't affect the contracting out status of the scheme without that the deed could be void or would be void in this and the court found that it was so can you bring us up to speed and maybe stop me worrying so much? <laughs> yeah, well, I think there is um, some hope on the horizon or light at the end of the tunnel, maybe, uh, because Virgin Media have been given leave to appeal, um, which is great. And the appeal is listed for the back end of June, I think. Um, and we also um I think it's also the case that if the appeal is unsuccessful, there have been murmurings from the government DWP that they might legislate to override the verdict, um, which actually would feel very appropriate. I know we were talking earlier about legislation overriding stuff and that that not necessarily being good. But I think in this case, that would actually be a very appropriate thing to do. Otherwise, there are just years of litigation, uncertainty for schemes with no benefit for members. I mean, it just seems like a pointless exercise. I think pretty much every advisor who's ever advised on pensions would kind of be involved in some capacity or other. And it just seems like a lot of fees and a lot of wasted time. Um, it, I mean, in terms of how our clients have been affected, um, I think most it's fair to say that most trustee clients haven't taken any immediate action. They haven't decided to go and look and see whether they have any sorts of problems. Um, because to be honest, even if they did find that there was an issue, it's still the original judgment is unclear still in the sense that does it need to be a certificate for the actuary? Is it just sufficient that there is some other sort of evidence and what might that evidence be? So actually, even if you go through the exercise of delving through your files and you find a potential issue, you're still not sure uh, whether it really is an issue or not. Um, and obviously, I mean, where it has cropped up um, 
and been a bit more of an issue is in relation to buy-ins and buy-outs. But then even in those cases, what I've seen is generally the parties just being pragmatic, um, taking a pragmatic view, proceeding on the basis that they will ensure the benefits that they know um, and will you know, build in appropriate contingencies, et cetera, for risks that might arise. So in my experience, it's, it's not holding things up. It's kind of hanging over us. But I think the pensions industry is quite good at dealing with these kind of big bombshells that suddenly <laughs> arise, you know, which tell you, you know, like Barbara, for example, that you haven't been doing things correctly for years and years, and now you've got to change. So I think we've been quite good at uh, getting used to dealing with those. Uh, and it's just in my experience, it's just... Um, Schemes mostly being pretty pragmatic. Yeah, let's hope so. I, mean, I am. I don't know. My weakest moments. I just. I hope the DWP do something, but I'm just. There's a part of me that thinks. Someone did put the argument to me initially. Was that, well, why would they? Because this will be improving benefits of members. If you found out you hadn't done something in the past, then that's that's a windfall. Why would they be? They'd be seen to take money away from members. And I thought, oh, that's that's a tricky one for government to be in. Yeah, but that that would be completely, I mean, it's a complete windfall, completely unintended, mm. because you would have made an amendment years ago. Uh, everybody understood what the benefits of the scheme were going forward, and everything had been administered on that basis. And it would just be, uh, yeah, just a windfall. And, and it does seem pointless. And there would be, as I say, a lot of litigation, I think, around this, a lot of fees for lawyers. So I should be welcoming it. But uh, <laughs> it just, it's just You're pointless. better than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I can rise above it. Uh, and just a lot of disruption. Just... Yeah. OK. Simon, have you got any, any thoughts on Section 37? <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to um, I, <laughs> I, await, <laughs> I await the appeal. Um, Whether DWP are already looking into what they could do, I, I think Carolyn's absolutely right. It would be common sense. And we've seen it before with super priority. Um, I can't remember, was it Warren Jay who effectively said, um, I have to rule in this way because the law's tied my hands, but this doesn't make sense. Please make it go away. Um, <laughs> and, and ultimately, that's what happens. So um, I would hope common sense prevails. I'll leave it there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. My fingers, I'll have to have one hand. Fingers crossed for now. I'm still not fully reassured, but I'm better than I was. Better than I was. So thank you. You've mopped my brow for me, Carolyn. <laughs> thank you. Um, I think that's that's all we've got time for today. So thank you, Carolyn, for joining us for this chat. It's been great fun. I hope you've enjoyed it. Got some I things have. up your chest as well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll see you again next time on the broadcast. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.